Welcome back to another episode of Cinema in Seconds. This is the podcast where we take small moments in movies and talk about why they are great. And we are back after a week off. And this week we are going into the late 1980s. And my name is Ian. I'm Daniel. And we have a guest with us today, Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've decided we're only going to have uh, guests whose names are Michael. Yeah. <laughs> we're slowly going to change the podcast to The Michael Show, co-hosted by Dan and Ian. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Ian, I, I guess, I mean, you know, you don't have to have a reason, but I was curious, uh, why late 80s? Why did that seem like a good vibe for this week's episode? I just felt I wanted to jump around a little bit. Uh, we did 70s a while ago. We did our more modern films. And then we did our Oscars, which kind of jumped all over the place. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, let's touch on the 80s. Let's give the 80s some love. That's the time Far I grew out. up in. So. And Mike, that was like the ideal episode for you? Or was it just you know, happened I, to be when you jumped in? I was excited to jump on it. Um, you know, I was born in 1984, but an older brother that walked me through a lot of um, terrible, horrible horror sequels, you know, when I was uh, younger. Um, nice. And, uh, you know, as it happens, I, I chose movies that were uh, against my first inclination to, to choose this utter trash to go through on this podcast. But, um, you know, hopefully it yeah, all works out. I was going to say, your, your picks are, I mean, we'll get into it, but they're pretty classy, especially the first one. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, I guess we can then go ahead and start this off. Uh, do we want to do guest first, or do you want one of us to go ahead and warm you up a bit? Uh, I don't mind going first. Oh, sure. Um, right on. Sure, give it a go. I, I guess for my, my first pick, uh, I chose uh, Henry V. Um, looking back on this movie, it's probably one of the first quote-unquote serious films uh, that I can remember being forced to watch for school that I genuinely enjoyed. Um, there's something about the score that immediately grabbed me, um, especially as a sleepy high, high schooler. Um, you know, I be falling asleep on my desk and that score just grabs you. And um, I was sucked in from beginning to end. And especially that four med tracking shot with a non-Novus Domine in, in the background, it's something that grabbed me. Uh, early on um you know one of the things that always struck me about the the play is along with some other um plays that 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 shakespeare has there's dual meaning behind the, the the work that's there and you can view a lot of what's in there as pro or anti war um you know, looking at the famous St. Crispin's Day speech, we happy few, we band of brothers, certainly can be viewed as a pro-war light. And Lawrence Olivier, um, you know, had a version of this play filmed in 1944 that was released after the Blitz. Um, the Kenneth Branagh version comes off decidedly, I mean, I view it as a little bit more anti-war than that. Um, certainly, but the moment I wanted to 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 look at was um, after the siege of of Harfleur. Um, Kenneth Branagh, who's playing Henry V, has just delivered his "Once more into the breach, dear friends, once more" speech, and he's giving this uh, message to the governor of, of Harfleur about all of the woes that will befall the, the town, about what will happen to the woman and children, their old men. And he gets the governor to, to, to lay down his arms. And um, what you see that's something that you don't see in a text is when the governor does lay down his arms and, and hands over the, the, the city to Henry there's this look of utter relief on Brenna's face. And it's something that, you know, I certainly didn't read into the text. 
And it's something in between the governor's speech of surrender and Henry's speech to his um, to his general saying, treat them of mercy. But it kind of puts that seed of doubt into your head that you wonder whether or not Henry's forces had it in them to actually take that city or if they could have gone any further. It's just something that's really stuck with me, you know, for 20 years or so. It's a great pick. Um, it's interesting you highlight that too, because like, I think Brano is someone who, his Shakespeare adaptations are easily the most like acclaimed pieces of his filmography as a director and probably as an actor too. And it's easy to, I think, overlook uh, his contributions to those because they stick very closely to the source. Like his Hamlet in particular is like, it's just the text. There's like yeah. no alterations at all. Um, but this is a really good example of how without changing the words, as it were, a different context is uh, brought to the scene that I'm sure had been done on stage at some point in history, but nonetheless is uh, something that Brano's making as a director uh, that alters the text in a pretty substantial way, I think. Because, yeah, as you mentioned, the Olivier version, that moment plays quite differently. Um yeah, good pick. Yeah, I haven't seen that film, so <laughs> I've seen the Olivier one, but I'm a big Shakespeare fan, but I, I haven't read Henry V. I've, I kind of steer away from the historical ones, mostly because I'm I've got this ridiculous notion that because they're numbered, I'd have to read all the Henrys in order. No, <laughs> <laughs> I know that that's you know it's not at all the case. It's but. I just have that in my head. Um, but Henry V is the one historical one I want to read because I, you know, I, I know it's about the, the Hundred Years' War and that has always kind of interested me. And yeah, well, now I want to watch the movie. <laughs> it's certainly one I'd recommend. It's, yeah, it's, I... it, 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 it grabs your attention and doesn't really let go for, for a while. And I mean, part of that's a reading of, of having that drive in in the reading of the text but the score goes a long way um it's something i would certainly recommend to anyone that's listening to this all right nice yeah interesting did you also just out of curiosity because uh, you mentioned it was something watched in high school i think yes um did you also see uh his hamlet in high school i did um there's pieces of it i remember more clearly than others and if i had the time to rewatch it it's i I would it's just something i haven't really thought of revisiting since then um Mm -hmm. i do remember it's like four hours yeah well i i do remember parts of it being filmed in a a castle that churchill was in the churchill family and there's a checkered floor that's on the i mean the cover of of you know the VHS when I was a blockbuster growing up, but, um, you know, and I think Billy Crystal might've been the grave digger, uh, is something else. I, I, I maybe right. I might be remember that wrong. I'm not sure. It has a star studded cast. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of celebrities in there. Like Jack Lemon shows up at the beginning for like five seconds, for example, <laughs> really didn't need to be Jack <laughs> Lemon, but you know, um, interesting. Yeah, I, I wish I had more to add to your moment uh, in terms of discussion. I guess it's interesting that you talked about uh, the historical context of the Olivier version coming out uh, in World War II in 1944, whereas this film, I was trying to think, like, what, you know, what major war, in a sense, is it, like, most close to? And, I mean, it's two years before the Gulf War, but I think you could read, especially the anti-war sentiment of the the scene that you point out in that conflict um but otherwise i mean i think it would still it it's maybe main historical referent for an audience at the time maybe still would have been vietnam i don't know i don't think likely it would be uh maybe some european union dealings you know with joining the union at that point or mm. or important i mean roger ebert i went back to re- to his review, and there seemed to be some something important with the European Union happening at that point, but 
I'm American. I'm I'm sorry. I don't really know that much about it. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I don't know nothing about anything. If it didn't happen in a movie, I mm-mm. I do like I do like the idea of Branna being able to inject his own ide- either ideologies or just artistic vision within you know within the works of one of our greatest authors because if you want to respect anybody's work when you're doing this it's his right you want to good old wills you want (laughs) to you want to respect his work because it's it's so esteemed but the great one of the great things about shakespeare is that it does allow for a lot of different interpretations and whether that's something as big as you know completely changing the setting right like the romeo and juliet movie where they set it in present day for example and I mean, I've seen lots of like live Shakespeare plays where they set an old Shakespeare play set to my Saskatchewan Rough Riders football team and, yeah. and how they're fans of that. So they can do anything with it. But a change like that, or not necessarily change, but just an interpretation like that, which is, I guess it would be non-visual, right? It's through the actor's interpretation himself is is almost more interesting than completely changing it because you're really finding the gaps in between where you can say what you want inside of this incredibly well-known play. I like that idea a lot. Well, now Mm -hmm. I just want to go back and watch a bunch of Branagh Shakespeare movies. (laughs) I keep periodically checking to see if Henry V is streaming anywhere in one of the dozens of services I have access to and it never is. So, um, I know Stanley Kubrick liked it a lot, so we're in good company. <laughs> All right, sweet. Uh, Ian, do you want to go next? You bet. So I'm glad you went high class on that one, uh, because Dan and I joked on air before about I'm going to be the one with all the populist picks, and that is absolutely the case tonight, because I picked probably the two <laughs> most popular movies of this time period. So Quite possibly. We're going with it. <laughs> Um, my first movie is The Princess Bride, and it's the the great moment during the sword fight where Inigo Montoya de- declares that he is not left-handed, and I I'm gonna start just kind of talking about my relationship with The Princess Bride. Did you either of you guys watch it when you were young? Was it like a childhood movie for either of you? Yep. It's kind of, in a way, very much like a, a Disney film in that not just the obvious sort of fairy tale esque tone, but it felt like a movie that you know just always existed. Like I didn't associate it as like an '80s movie until I was like a teen and was like, oh yeah, that because it, it just feels like it you know has always been, especially when you're a kid. Yeah, it's a movie I didn't see until I was in middle school. Oh, it's it's a movie I didn't see until I was in middle school. Um, but I'm happy I I didn't see it until then. Um, there's a lot of winks and nods to camera that I don't think I'd be smart enough to see when I was in elementary school. Right. See, the interesting thing is for me, it completely slipped under the radar when I was younger, and I didn't watch it until I was older. It just it was a movie I knew was out there and I, my friends, I knew that loved it, but I just never saw it. It never, it wasn't in our house. And so I don't have the same nostalgia connection that a lot of other people do. And so when I watched it, you know, I was kind of expecting it to be one of those, you know, movies you watch and because you don't have that connection, it doesn't work for you, but boy, did it (laughs) like once I watched it, I immediately knew that, this was something special and specifically at the moment I want to talk about. So it's during the sword fight between Inigo Montoya and Wesley when he's, he's hunting them down and they're having the sword fight and he's one of the most revered sword fighters, but you know, they're pretty even. And then all of a sudden Wesley's like, so why are you smiling? And he says, cause I know something you don't know. I'm not left-handed and then switches sword hands and, and starts winning the fight again. And once I saw that, I was I was in. I thought, okay, this movie's brilliant. And I think one of the great things about it is there's something about that 
sense of humor that just makes it unique. Like it really makes that movie stand apart from almost any other movie. I can't think of another movie that has that specific tone of humor throughout the entire thing. It's like, it's whimsical, but it's still funny. Um, and it's, it's sort of light humor, right? It's light humor. That's not necessarily offensive, but it's, it's not too lame either. It's like almost right on the verge of being <laughs> really cheesy. And it knows that it's right on the verge and it's okay. It's like Rob Reiner just happens to stay on that sword edge so well. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a good point. I mean, to your point about tone, I think it actually... The Princess Bride is so good at that that it makes a legitimate parody film in that style look a lot worse. To that end, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is kind of one of the last Mel Brooks movies, um, it's not like horrible, but it's not that funny. And the fact that Carrie Ellis is the lead there yeah. kind of is makes it worse because you keep thinking about The Princess Bride, which is funnier and is also like... It works as a legitimate swashbuckler. Um, so I, I like that you point out the precision of the tone. I think the other thing that's really fun about that scene is it taps into like that little kid logic of like you're playing games and you keep changing the rules to make yourself win. Or it's like, I'm not left-handed. Uh, I'm not left-handed either. Like it keeps <laughs> going back and forth and it, it taps into that innocence, uh, I think, really well. And it also gives an interesting way of keeping the fight fresh right because it's it's not just a sword fight i mean they're talking throughout the entire thing which is kind of kind of fun and cool but then it's that ridiculous idea of switching hands is also a way that the fight switches momentum right so one person's winning and then oh i'm i actually am right-handed and so now this person's winning and then he goes actually i'm also right-handed and then he he takes the lead in the fight so it's a good way of uh of moving the power balance back and forth in a way that's exactly like the princess bride would do. Mm. And there's a playfulness to the fight that, you know, to me just evokes a playground. You know, um, you see at one point they're doing flips around a gymnast bar. Um, I, I, I want to say does Anigo Montoya, try to uh sword fight between his legs at one point i think that might be in there um but it's just you know there's some legitimately great choreography in the scene mixed in with just these visual jokes that you know are just there to hold it you know a, a kid's attention but have this daffy playground logic to them mm -hmm. yeah and even in the set which is you know it's awesome looking but it's also very clearly a set mm -hmm. i think lends to that you know playground type feel that's a good point point. and even the score is kind of it's one of those scores that telegraphs what's happening in in mm -hmm. and the score is basically what i just said about the humor it's like on the verge of ridiculously cheesy and yet it works it just it, it helps build that specific tone too well, on that end, Mike, you mentioned that, you know, you didn't see it as a kid and you're like a young kid and you're glad you didn't because there's a certain wit to the references that you don't think you would have got. I mean, I can attest to that because when I was like a young kid watching this, I didn't think of it as being like tongue in cheek. I just thought it was like a, you know, fighting movie. I mean, that those yeah. elements don't now I watch it and it's like, my God, was I so, so ignorant as a child? <laughs> but <laughs> As a kid, you totally buy into it um, in a really sort of pure, innocent way. At least I did. And I think that's the experience for a lot of people. All right. All right, Dan, what you got for us? Okay. Um, so my pick comes from Do the Right Thing, which is a film that in many ways is built on like little moments because there is a plot. The basic story is all about the rising racial tensions throughout this bed neighborhood that eventually come to a violent end. But a lot of the meat of the movie is about advancing that tension, but also just exploring the environment and the community and the characters over the course of a day. And a lot of the conversations weave from really serious and heavy to very playful, very honest, and also very comical. 
And to that end, there is a trio of characters I love. These are these older men who spend the whole movie standing or sitting at this wall. Uh, you get the sense that they just come hang out here every day. Uh, the characters' names are uh, ML, uh, Coconut Sid, and my personal favorite, Sweet Dick Willie, which is the greatest <laughs> name in the history of fiction. Um, Sweet Dick Willie, a Star Wars story when. But um, <laughs> I love these guys. They have great banter, wonderful chemistry, and some of the most fun bits of the film are when they sort of commentate the action. You could maybe compare them to like a Greek choir. Um, maybe. I don't know. That's that's history. I don't know about that. I just know that they make me laugh when they're fun. But the scene uh, I really want to highlight is it gets really serious where one of the men, ML, starts talking about the Korean grocer in the community. And he's getting very viscerally angry about its presence because it's this mostly, essentially all black community they live in. And yet none of the businesses are run by black people. Korean immigrants who've been in the country for a lot less time than uh, he he or anyone he knows, and yet they have a business, they're thriving, and uh, he's not. And it's a, it's as a viewer, it's like it's a tense scene because on the one hand, there's legitimate grievances to what he's talking about. You really get that anger. But on the other hand, you know, there is a sort of xenophobia towards these uh, uh, immigrants coming in and like taking our jobs. Like the rhetoric is really not that far removed from, uh, you know, that sort of talking point. And there's tension within the men because Sweet Dick Willie calls him out on like, you know, uh, basically, if you wanted to start a business, you could have, you're not going to, you say these things, it's easier to, you know, talk than, than not. But what I really love is the way that the scene shifts to comedic at the end when Sweet Dick Willie dismisses uh, ML's complaints and then says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over right now, get some beer, and give the Koreans more of my money. And as he gets up, he, he mutters, it's Miller time, God damn it!" And I love that, one, because it makes me laugh, and all I want in life is to laugh at things. Um, but two, I think it's like a perfect microcosm, and I think I'm going to go back to this a lot in my picks throughout this podcast. It's a microcosm of the whole film where it's all about these conversations these tensions that are that tap into legitimate grievances that are multifaceted and complex and there's an anger to all these people that on some level is of valid like all of them every character is on some level coming from some valid place of like frustration in their lives how they direct it uh whether that's you know well suited or not is debatable certainly but you know, that real sense of pain and anger. And yet the way that the film is constantly weaving in and out of like sometimes those really serious conversations, really serious frustrations end in a lighter way that they don't, it, as much as it sizzles, it doesn't blow up in their faces. And yet on the other hand, there are moments that things that seem innocuous end up becoming really not innocuous. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a coincidence that the main conflict in the film or the main violent act at the end is just rooted in you know, the fact that Sal's Pizzeria has only white Italians on the wall and no black people. And the initial conflict is not even taken that seriously by most characters except for one until it ends up building to something a lot more profound. So I love this scene for sort of balancing those ideas in terms of, you know, the the seriousness and the legitimacy and the sort of racial critique that I think the film is doing while also still, you know, showing that not uh, explode in the face. And also, I think it's honestly really just entertaining, which I think Do the Right Thing doesn't get enough credit for how fun to watch it is. Yeah, another moment I can think of that kind of describes that is the fire hydrant, where, you know, they're the neighborhood's goofing around and they're having fun with the fire hydrant, spraying people down, and then they hit that, that rich guy's car. And so then, oh, well, now this was something fun and it's taken a, taken a turn. And I, th yeah, I think that kind of means your, it's a, it's a smaller scale of what happens at the end, but it's the same idea, right? So mm -hmm. lightheartedness, changing tone rapidly. Yeah. Good pick. I, I love this movie. Mike, you know, you know, even in this moment, it, it, I, I, I do love this movie. And even in this moment, in this moment, you do see the tone switch again to something just, um, showing the racial tension. What's the first thing that Sweet Dick Willie says when he goes over mm -hmm. to the great shop? He calls Yoner Kung Fu. 
And yeah. you're, you're, you're just taken aback by that. He's like, oh, well, he's just, he's putting aside the fight between ML, ML and, and Coconut, and he's going to walk over there and just give his, his business to the, to the uh, Korean shop owner, and then he calls him a racial slur. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. to, your, to your point, uh, Ian, there's, there's all these moments peppered throughout the movie where there's, um, there's humor and seriousness just one after the other. Um, I'm thinking of something similar here, which is, you know, the mayor saving that kid from being run over by the car. And when the rest of the community uh, walks over, you know, well, why are you abusing my son? They're all behind the, the mom initially. Uh, and, well, they all, I think it's funny, but things turn serious when uh, the mayor tells the mom what really happened. And that entire movie is just peppered with, with these moments just going back and forth. Yeah, they really are. Mm-hmm. And to your point, too, the fact that the, uh, that, you know, Sweet Dick Willie uses, uh, you know, racist remarks that he does in sort of a playful way, but nonetheless, the remarks are racist. At the end of the film, in the riot scene, the community starts to shift towards the grocer for a second, and it looks like the grocer might get trashed too. And they don't. And one of the things that the uh, the Korean grocer says that I, that's really interesting is he says, I'm black too. And they kind of dismiss it, but it does, there is this sense of like a recognition of shared marginalization in this community. And it's, it's and again, it's also like a, a loaded thing in terms of like, like a lot of this movie, it leaves you with a lot to chew on and debate where it's like um, talking about those, that relationship within the community and the complexities of that. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant little scene. And you're right. I don't think the movie gets enough credit for being funny when it is funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And boy, Miller must've uh, cashed out a lot of dough for a product placement because that <laughs> it shows up a lot in that movie. It does. <laughs> Never. Yeah. I don't drink Miller High Life very much, but every time I watch Do the Right Thing, I'm like, maybe tonight's the night. For separating a man <laughs> from his beer. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good because I've had to, in the, the intro to film course I've TA'd for the last couple years, every year it's been on the syllabus. So it's a good thing that I do like it because I'm like, <laughs> here we are again. Yeah. <laughs> First week of September, but you know. Yeah, that's a good one. All Thank right. you. Uh, Mike, back to you. Oh, oh, you uh, put me under some, under some pressure here. And in some ways, I I wish I hadn't chosen this, uh, but I chose Raising Arizona. Um, it's a movie that I didn't watch until I was out of college. I'd seen Fargo and Big Lebowski and Miller's Crossing before this. Um, but the thing that I want to talk about with Raising Arizona is the art of the callback. And with... Any stand-up routine or any vaudeville routine, um, the callback joke is something that um, is central to to making the the, the humor stick. And um, God, I hope I do this justice because the movie plays like a Looney Tunes uh, short. And um, yes, it does. Ho- hopefully, this is something uh, I can describe accurately. But. Um, now, to those of you who are listening, hopefully you're all familiar with this. Um, Nicholas Cage and Holly Hunter steal a quintuplet um, from a local businessman. Um, Holly Hunter's character is in, infertile, uh, and um, their solution was basically, well, they're not going to miss one of them if we always steal one. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It's just brilliant logic. It, it is. Uh, Nicholas Cage, his co-worker, Glenn, and his co-worker's wife, Frances McDormand's character, Dot, come over to see the kids, and um, or see the kid. They have five kids of their own, and they're just terrible parents. Um, you know, one of the kid, kids is destroying Nicholas Cage and Holly Hunter's trailer, Another one has an eye patch and is spooning some green jello thing and just throwing it everywhere. Um, <laughs> and over the picnic table, um, Francis McDormand 
who seemingly is a terrible parent, is going through all of the worries that Holly Hunter must have as, as, as a parent, talking about every single shot by name that the, 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 that the, uh, the kid should have and how life insurance must be had in case Nicholas Cage gets hit by a truck or a tornado or whatnot. And she calls out the dip tet shot by the technical scientific name of it, which I've already forgotten. Um, now, Nicholas Cage. Tetanus? Yes. Well, diphtheria was the one I didn't, I didn't remember. It's just absurd <laughs> that she would know this after seeing her, her parenting skills in, in, in the moment. Nicholas Cage, um, somewhat of a, of a, of a, uh, he's drawn to, to crime. Let's just put it that way. And after this scene, immediately following this scene, there's this 20 minute chase sequence where Nicholas Cage uh, decides to steal diapers and cops and store owners chase him. 20 minutes, dog, shotguns, the whole shebang, Looney Tunes logic everywhere. <laughs> when they get back to the trailer, this is the callback joke, and this is my moment. Um, Holly Hunter decides that she wants to throw John Goodman and William Forsyth out, who just broke out of prison to see Nicolas Cage, and he's kind of being a good friend. And she's had enough of them being there. They're already 30 beers deep. There's Budweiser strewn everywhere across the trailer, saying, and Holly Hunter says to John Goodman and William Forsyth, I need to get you out of here as soon as I can next morning because I want to see for some shots. To which William Forsyth responds without missing a beat. What's he need? His dip tet? And it's just the perfect <laughs> callback joke that just is a gut buster to me. Brilliant. Yeah, that's really good. And it's a good example of how in, in spite of the or maybe not in spite of, but in addition to the sort of cartoony Looney Tunes logic of it, there's also like these very uh, verbal gags. Like, because uh, that film, more than I think any of their comedies, plays like just slapstick uh, anarchy. Um, but it does still have that Cohen uh, intelligence in the script. Yeah, that's a really good pick. Man, I haven't seen that movie in a while. It is. Just... It holds up. It gets better and better the more you watch it. <laughs> um, it's it's funny. Uh, that scene, I want to say it's around that scene too where uh, um, Holly Hunter, sorry, something just banged in my apartment building so I <laughs> jumped for a second. Uh, Holly Hunter's talking about getting rid of uh, John Goodman and William Forsyth and John Goodman just says something like, I wonder who wears the pants in this relationship. And it's such a sitcom-y joke, but the absurdity of how shit these two are making that comment reminds me of like a Simpsons gag in a way where it's like, it's so such an exaggerated portrait of it that it's way funnier. Uh, that's that's great. <laughs> you can really see why the Coens keep on going back to a lot of their same characters. You know, John Goodman being one of them. And, you know, he's just perfect in, in this movie. Um, you know, uh, just playing playing his role for you know the extra laugh um random screaming at no at no point um <laughs> just i don't know he's perfect i i i love this movie so much mm -hmm. see for me like the the show stealer is uh nathan senior as the business owner just he's so I think I just like angry old people. They just make me laugh. Like there's an amazing <laughs> line where he's talking to the cops about, he's describing his kidnap, you know, toddler. And he mentions that he was wearing jammies and the, one of the officers is like, can you describe the pajamas, uh, the pajamas? And he responds, I don't know. They were jammies. They got Yodas on them and shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh God. I'd print that on like a t-shirt. It's amazing. What a film. I might rewatch that actually. It's been a while. I'm trying to think so. of another one of theirs that's as goofball as this, but I, I don't know if they've ever... Hudsucker Proxy um, is probably the closest. Yeah. But even it's got more of a... It's kind of screwball in more of like a 1930s, 1940s Hollywood way, whereas this is more, uh, as Mike mentioned, Looney Tunes. Yeah. 
So that's probably the closest comparison. Their comedies certainly uh, since then have gotten a lot more dry in some ways, like especially if you consider movies like A Serious Man a comedy, which it kind of is. It's kind of not, but also kind of is. I don't know. (laughs) I'd be curious to see if they could make something like Raising Arizona again. Yeah. Yeah, go kind of go back to their comedy roots. That would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe they shouldn't try because they're old now, but I don't know. It's I, interesting. I guess if you think about uh, the Buster Scruggs, that that first uh, short that they had was pretty goofy. I guess True. that's probably the, the the closest callback I could think. That was the highlight of the film. Yeah, it was. I love that <laughs> section. Nice. All right, good pick. Good pick, yeah. That's a good one. Okay, right. should I Ian. go to now the most popular movie of, of this time period? <laughs> For sure, man. I just I just kind of let this go without talking about Die Hard. We've got to talk about Die Hard. But when when I thought about that, I thought, oh, I got to think of a moment now. And so I'm taking a page out of your book, Dan, and I'm trying to think of something that's a little bit more of a microcosm, right? I wanted to think of a a small moment that's that kind of sums up most of the things that are going on in the movie because Die Hard is made up of so many moments that so many people know. Uh, so the one I decided to go with is when when John McClane goes to the roof to try to contact somebody and so he gets on the emergency broadcast system and of course the I guess it's not a 911 operator but whoever's operating the system is you know giving them the runaround and saying this is sorry sir this is emergencies only. And he goes, well, no shit, lady. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> and I love this for a few reasons. <laughs> First, it just really gets to John McClane's character in such a brilliant way. Because he's he's a very frustrated guy through most of this movie. And you can absolutely see the frustration. But he's also hilarious. He's hilarious in a in kind of a reactionary way. So most most of his quips and, and stuff come from reacting to whatever ridiculous situation he's in. But I also like it from the standpoint of what the movie says about people with authority. Because it really doesn't think highly of anybody. Everybody seems to be inept, right? Anybody who's in a position of authority is an idiot. Mostly the cops and, of course, the FBI. And in this particular case... Um, the woman at the the 911 operator because it, clearly it sounds like he's in distress and she's just like nah he's he's full of it there's no way he's telling <laughs> the truth and <clears throat> but there's a sorry go ahead no, I, go for it just there's a certain i I'm, i never thought about it but as you described that it die hard there's almost a certain slobs versus snobs quality about it in a way like it kind of like Thinking about it that way, I'm like, it's almost like the most violent version of Animal House ever made, where it's a similar sort of root of conflict where you have the sort of uh, earnest, uh, relatable everyday Joes versus the uh, elitists with their power who are snooty and far removed. And yeah, this scene taps into that. And I think it's funnier than basically anything in Animal House. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it really is because he's John McClane is such a great character. And I think it's lines like these that really humanize him, right? Because everybody, I mean, we talk about the 80s action heroes and he's, his name is always up there. But then, and I mean, he, he's, a, he's a buff guy. Like he looks like a 80s action hero, right? He could be in the jungle shooting up his machine gun with the rest of them. Uh, but it's, it's this kind of stuff that makes him a notch above, right? It's, it's him that makes John McClane stand out. It's all these these quips that really make him feel like a, a regular frustrated person because he is in a ridiculous situation and how would any of us act in that situation i don't know so i would die immediately I mean, <laughs> yeah that's a good point <laughs> i remember one time i was watching lord of the rings with my brother and he goes would you scale the mountains or would you go through the mines of moria it's like i think i'd just die jake i don't think i'd even make it that far but you know thanks for asking <laughs> um it's something else that's cool about that line too and this is more of like in retrospect it seems better as bruce willis has gotten older he's gotten increasingly less willing to express himself as an actor like everything is just like 
hey, I'm John McClane. Like, he's so, even in, like, really good movies, like Unbreakable, he plays it, like, really, like, low. Right. But this line, it's got such a, like, really intense energy, and he just, like, spits it out in such a rage that it's like, man, Bruce Willis used to care. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think that the plot point of having, having John McClane get beat up throughout the movie, which, you know, the first three kind of stick with, that really adds to his expressed outrage in this moment. And I don't think it's really sold as well if he's, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger type uh, with his one-liners, which are different, you know, entirely different vehicle with, of let off some steam Bennett than, than this line, you know. Um, but yeah, throughout this movie, you're, you're just seeing him, you know, you know, his feet are toast by the end of the movie, but... This line really works well with that sensibility of just a regular everyday schmo kind of being put upon by this. Like, I've had enough. I don't. I don't need to hear this from you, lady. Like, <laughs> absolutely, yes. Like, you have no idea what I've been through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's there's almost something like again speaking of that everydayness. It's like the relatability of like being called by like a telemarketer or having to call like your internet or cable company and like. You know, the person, not that it's their fault, I'm not condoning anyone's listening, yelling at the person working at Bell, but, um, you know, who are, they have the sort of bureaucratic system they have to run through in terms of like, well, we'll connect you to this person. You're just like, I just want my problem solved. But it's so much more heightened when, you know, vague, uh, people from somewhere vaguely in Eastern Europe have taken over the Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. Um, that adds a little bit of oomph to the proceedings. And not to break down the minutia of the line too much, but even just the pizza, right? That's what's more every day than pizza. <laughs> right, so, True. Yeah. Great point. Great scene. So I'm glad you were inspired by let's find a funny line that's actually <laughs> microcosm for the whole yeah. film. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, little known film called Die Hard. If you haven't uh, seen it, go check it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, okay, before I get into my pick, I want to quickly mention that I had an honorable mention. Um, both from 1988, I was going to, I was thinking about going with The Naked Gun, specifically the line at the end when, um, uh, Frank Drebin is professing his love to Priscilla Presley. And he says at one point, Jane, the problems of two people might not amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world, but this is our hill and these are our beans. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I don't have enough to say about it to make it my moment, but I needed it to have some sort of representation <laughs> yeah. here. Um, my actual moment is perhaps even more minor and weird to fixate on, but it comes from David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, which is... Uh, for those who haven't seen it, I'll give the vaguest of plot synopses, which is about twin gynecologists, both played by Jeremy Irons, who uh, one becomes particularly infatuated with uh, a woman who then leaves him when she finds out that they were essentially at point swapping places and playing each other and that, you know, she can't trust them. That is the vaguest of plot synopses that doesn't really get into how strange this film is, but it's enough to go to the scene I want to go to. So one of the twins, I believe Beverly, was especially infatuated with this woman and her leaving has caused him to collapse. He's in like a, a, a very, you know, severe state of depression. And at one point, Elliot, the other twin, goes back to their apartment and Beverly is on the floor uh, of the apartment, like surrounded by fast food trash. Uh, and I like this moment for a couple different reasons. One is that... Um, a big theme in the film is emotional codependency and how characters place all their sense of self-worth and value in the hands of externals, whether it's other people, like twins relying on each other in ways that are very unhealthy at points uh, in terms of Bev placing all of this power, whether he wants to or not, in this woman's hands so that when she leaves, he just completely collapses. And then in, in terms of externals, like fast food, and I think it would be easy as a filmmaker to go with, you know, alcohol or uh, drugs or like, you know, wild self-destructive sex parties, which movies tells us are bad, um, as a way to, you know, represent that in a very heightened way and also in a morbid way, in a bit of a glamorous way. 
you know like it's not necessarily glamorous to die from you know drugs but when depicted on film it has a certain mythology i think to it but being covered in trash from a fast food joint does not have quite that same mystique it's it's almost all the more pitiful and and jeremy irons as an actor he really plays up the like the pitiful nature of it like it's not a glamorous a star has fallen moment it's quite just kind of gross and sad um but the the dumber reason why i like this scene and probably the more important one is that the trash surrounding him is harvey's which is an ontario fast food (laughs) burger joint and that warms my heart as an ontarian david cronenberg is from toronto the film is set in toronto and i mean i really love how different that is from most films that are shot in canada where either a they're shot to not look like it's Canada and you're actually, you know, looking at, uh, you know, any other country but Canada or B, they can't stop yelling at you about how Canadian they are. Yeah. And then it would be Tim Horton's rappers around it. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Movies like Bon Cop, Bad Cop, where it's just like, it never stops being like Canadian. And it's like, as a Canadian, it's just like, this is embarrassing. We can't, we got to be able to do better than this, but I love like it's, it's, a background detail it informs the scene and it adds a little bit of flavor as someone in canada to be like oh that's neat um but it's not overbearing and that's kind of a good uh minor example of how cronenberg approaches the canadian settings of not all of his films but all of his that are set in canada where it's always present and you can always tell especially if you know what canada looks like but it's never overemphasized and uh in its own little way, I think this moment uh, gets that perfectly. And it makes me hungry when I watch it. So, you know, great scene all around. There you go. I, I, I always have those moments as like a board gamer, right? Because I, I'm big into the board game industry. So every once, like in Gone Girl, I see a game of Dominion, which is a pretty <laughs> massive one. And I'm like, oh, and nobody else would get that. But I'm like, hey, he's got Dominion. <laughs> it's nice. I have not seen Dead Ringers. I should uh, I should throw it on my October watch this year. Nice. Get that in. It's I, very good. Go ahead, Mike. I watched it this uh, this afternoon, and it was uh, not really what I was expecting of Cronenberg. Um, there's very few Cronenbergy type scenes, as if that's a word, um, but to to Dan, Dan, to your point, you know, Jeremy Irons plays Dapper very well. And seeing him mm-hmm. fall from this well-put-together gentleman to gentleman to this state of just greasy stupor is really a, a great way of putting it across. And it's not something that you would otherwise think of in most movies. I mean, I... Seeing it now for the first time, I was thinking of Alec Baldwin um, when I when I saw the movie, uh, and you know that famous drunk tape that he had with his daughter. Um, but you know, obviously, this is predates that by thirty years. Now that's a performance right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I'm glad you mentioned that it's not what you expected because the film comes at like a weird moment in Cronenberg's career where he's starting to shift away from like straight up horror movies and starting to make more conventional dramas at least on the surface but there's still a sort of underlying layer of strangeness which makes them weirder because if something like videodrome is so out there that you're kind of like got it like i you conditioned to a certain way but the fact that this film flirts so closely to being like a drama that could be nominated for oscars and probably should have been because irons is brilliant in it but also has just like the strange Cronenberg obsession with the body and with sex, it just, it makes it more unnerving. Um, in a way, it's kind of a really interesting precursor uh, to the work that Cronenberg would do with Viggo Mortensen. And I think Irons, I wish he did more movies with Irons because they got great work out of each other. What year, sorry, what year is this, Dan? What year did it come out? 1988. Oh, okay. It's based on a book called Twins, which as far as I know is not related to the Schwarzenegger DeVito film Twins. But maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great if the Dead Ringers and Twins came from the same source material. <laughs> sure. How amazing. Or if you swap the casts. <laughs> so David Cronenberg's Twins with Schwarzenegger and DeVito. I would watch that. 
I'd never stop watching that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's good. Great stuff. Cool. All right, so we got some uh, Canadian fast food reference in there. Perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mike mentioned a greasy stupor. Now I'm feeling like maybe maybe a greasy stupor is in order for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I guess we'll... Should we wrap things up, boys? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, thanks for uh, coming on, jumping on to our 80s, 80s extravaganza. Class well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it was our pleasure. Yeah. And um, we, we joked about this before the, the show started, that you have nothing to promote, but, you know, whatever. You got anything to promote? Uh, okay. Uh... <laughs> it just feels like cu- common courtesy. Yeah. I do have a Twitter account. I've maybe tweeted two or three times in 10 years, but uh, what the hell? Uh, so it's at the BT skink, S-K-I-N-K, uh, all one word. Don't ask me how I got it. It was my AIM screen name from middle school. Um, it makes somewhat sense to me now. I love how we just stick with our ridiculous old names. Like, everybody still does that. It's hilarious. I'm too lazy to change it now. The internet never forgets. It's all there. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah. yeah, I mean, once you got something, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but whatever, it's something. You got to be called something. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, what's on the tap for Eyebrow Cinema? Uh, yeah, so Eyebrow Cinema is the YouTube channel. Um depending on when this comes out, I should be having a Q&A video launch shortly and also my next video essay, which is on being John Malkovich. So if you like that motion picture, uh, hit up my YouTube channel. I got some interesting things to say about it and other office cult set movies from 1999. So it'll be a good time. Yeah. Ian, what about you? Um, I got... Not a whole lot going on. I guess if you like board games, uh, check out Cardboard Conjecture that I'm a guest host or a, I don't know even what you'd call me. I'm just, I'm the third guy there. So. You're the third man. The third man. <laughs> You're who that film was about. There go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, so there we go. So thanks for listening and we're Let us know. These. In our comments or on Twitter or wherever you interact with us, what your favorite movie, little movie moments from the late 1980s are. And if you like our picks, or if you don't like our picks, tell us that too. You bet. Interact with us. <laughs> yes, let us know. We are at uh, cinema underscore seconds on Twitter. So follow us there and send us some messages. Okay. Thanks, guys. 